Uh, hi, welcome to Articulate. My name is Divya. Today I'm happy to have Juliet Jakes as my guest on the podcast. Juliet is a writer and a filmmaker. She has published two books, Rainer Heppenstall, A Critical Study and Trans Memoir. Trans Memoir is a log of her experiences as a person growing up in a time and society that was hostile to even question one's gender that was assigned at birth and her gender change surgery. This was made into a landmark series in the Guardian called A Transgender Journey for two years from 2010 to 2012 and the column was long listed for the Orwell Prize in 2011. Juliet has also writes short fiction, essays and critical appraisals on literature, film, art, music, politics, gender, sexuality and football. She has given reviews on the London Review of Books, Freeze, Art Review, New York Times, The Washington Post, among the many publications. She was included in the Independence Pink List for many years and is a regular contributor to the New Statesman. She has made two films, Approach Withdraw, co-directed with artist Kerwall Work in 2016 and You Will Be Free in 2017, and has also directed a documentary entitled Revivification, Art, Activism and Politics in Ukraine in 2018 as part of a residency there. She has founded and co-hosted Sweet 212, a radio program that looks at the arts in, the so, in their social, cultural, political and historical contexts, running from 2017 to 2019 and has recently relaunched the show as a podcast. Juliet has taught at the City Lit Institute in London in 2019 and on the Contemporary Art Practice course at the Royal College of Art as well as giving guest lectures and workshops at various art institutions juliet has presented her work in many countries across the world and has been nominated for numerous awards for her writing she has completed her phd in creative and critical writing at the university of sussex in 2019. so uh welcome to the podcast juliet thank you so much for agreeing to be on my podcast and I had a fangirl moment 30 years too late, but then I couldn't believe it when you said yes. So um, I'm, I'm really pleased and, um, for, and thank you so much for being so gracious. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> so um, I, I just want to kind of um, dive in. I don't want to go with the usual route of asking my you know, guests to talk about themselves and their childhoods. Um, I just want to start because there's so many questions. So first of all, I wanted to check why Rainer Heppenstall? You have made so many references to authors from the past and contemporary literature, but you chose Rainer Heppenstall to research for your PhD and complete it with a published book. What was special about him? Um, well, it wasn't my PhD. It was my uh, master's thesis. Oh, so was this it? was okay. um, 15 years ago. Oh, okay. Um, so I was in my early 20s and... I was very interested, I was reading a lot of modernist and postmodernist fiction, very, very interested in uh, all forms of um, modernist and avant-garde and experimental art, really, uh, but particularly literature. I wanted to be a writer. And with Heppenstall, he was kind of on the fringes of lots of British and English um literary circles but he was a real francophile as well he was bilingual and he was very engaged with what was happening in french literature in the mid 20th century um 
He's a really interesting figure. Politically, he, at the height of his career, he's quite hard to pin down. Mm-hmm. Um, by the end of his career, he's he's very, very right-wing, actually. Um, but I find a lot of his earlier novels quite interesting for how hard they are to pin down politically. But they're more interesting for the way they deal with writing about the self. He has a really interesting approach to subjectivity in his work, I think. Mm-hmm. So... You know, his first novel, and the one he's still best known for, is called The Blaze of Noon, and it's a first-person novel told by a blind masseur. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have lots of really interesting descriptions of the physical properties of objects as told by a blind man, Um, and of sexuality and sex, and these sort of physical objects and human beings are kind of all described in a similar kind of way. Um, And he just has a really, really beautiful, very lucid prose style. I remember when I was writing my thesis on him and turning it into that book for Dorky Archive in 2007, I really wanted to kind of cut his sentences down because his sentences are very long. Mm. But I found that I just couldn't shave off a word. They were just so beautifully constructed. Um, But there's, there's two novels he wrote during the Second World War. And the first one of these I read was the second one he published called The Lesser in Fortune. Mm-hmm. And it's all about, it's sort of, you know, barely described, barely uh, thinly veiled uh, autobiographical novel. I think I'd call it autofiction. Um, all about this sort of, you know, someone who's conscripted for the Second World War, but never sees action because he has a nervous breakdown. Um, so this this novel kind of, it's this incredibly quiet narrative, but it's so beautifully written. And it's this very, very interior um, you know, all the action is inside the narrator's head, really, all the action that's that's really interesting. Uh, and that just really interested me as, as a model of writing about about the self, self. Um, and was a big influence on my later work. Yeah, so it looks like that you used some of his um, style of writing when you were talking about unpicking your own thoughts and um, standing apart from yourself when you looked at your, your younger self and how you kind of uh, analysed your uh, whole change in personality and thinking and everything. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I learned from from his writing and some of his contemporaries, people like B.S. Johnson and Anne Quinn, who I also talk about a lot um, elsewhere. Anne Quinn with the short story, I, saw, I heard that, yeah. Yeah, mm. um, you know, she's, she's a really interesting writer as well. I think all three of them were very interested in approaches to writing about the self. And as you say, detaching yourself from yourself in order to write about yourself. Mm. Um, Happenstall's writing is very detached. Um, you know, this is a man who has a very awkward relationship with like throwing himself into life, but nonetheless often did so. Um, and yeah, something about seeing yourself as a character and it only really becoming only really becoming possible to write autobiographically effectively when you start to see yourself as character and understand yourself as someone with motivations and goals and character flaws and strengths yeah. and certain traits informing relationships and behaving in certain situations. Um, and yeah, that was that was a big thing I learned from all of those authors, but Happenstall in particular. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you say later on, um, I mean, I'll talk about it later when you say that you prefer to write fiction rather than things um, of real people. So I suppose you treated your own uh, story like a fictional character or it was... (laughs) Yeah, um, this is really interesting. So I, I made two attempts at writing the memoir. 
Oh, um, I'm going to focus on the memoir rather than the Guardian series because the Guardian series was a series of, you know, sort of 900 to 1,000 word blogs and it was a lot easier to pitch that sort of personal kind of confessional journalism. Yeah. Um, although, I mean, that that was very interesting to talk about as well, uh, but it feels like a long time ago now. Uh, with the memoir, it was harder over like a long, more sustained narrative to work out how to approach it and... And you had so many goals. You didn't want to make it a typical memoir. You wanted to add no. in. Well, absolutely. And I, yeah. I work these out. I use with my short fiction, I always um, kind of create a character using a character survey. Uh, and this will record things like, you know, the character's name, where and when they're born, their education, religion, previous jobs. It's very detailed. And it will have like a list of long and short term goals with the things that drive oh, the story. Oh, is it? Okay. And so before I did the second draft of the memoir, I wrote one of these for my 18-year-old self. Um, and that helped so me sort important. of work out exactly where to pick up the story. Of course, just having gone to university, living in Manchester, big city, moved there from a very small town in Surrey. And what were my goals? And there were goals I wasn't always conscious of. You know, my short-term goals were to get a degree, to form a band, actually. I really want to do that in Manchester. Um, and to go out on the kind of queer scene in Manchester. Mm. And then my long-term goals were to become a writer, I not realised that yet, to transition, which I also hadn't really realised yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and make it go into academia. I wasn't really sure about that yet either. But by working out these goals, I could then drive the story and then I could create uh, an overall narrative with an opening, an inciting incident, risks, climax and conclusion, and that action being driven by the pursuit of the goals, which goals are more important, which ones fell away and why, um, and then individual scenes within them and different scenes being driven by different goals. Um, yeah. And that was really what made the book work, was like, you know, treating myself like I would treat myself, treat a character in my, one of my short stories. Yeah, 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 that's, that's so cool. Um, my next question would be about um, the fact that you research into films and authors from the turn of the century. And I say that you find resonance in a bygone era rather than contemporary films and books. Or maybe I'm wrong, but um, from what I've um, heard from your memoir, I felt that you kind of have a kind of, a, uh, you look at the past with a certain amount of... Um, longing or um like past past not your past but like you know the 50s or maybe uh earlier than that with a certain kind of <laughs> like you wish you were uh there then to kind of add more um bits of transgender history into it into the fiction there um so could you say a bit more about that and why is it that um contemporary films and um um, it doesn't. Why, why is it that they don't impress you so much? What are the red flags that one should look out for when we look at transgender characters in films and in um, TV programs? I know it's a big question. <laughs> there's, there's a lot there. Okay, yeah. I'm going to try and try, so I'm going to try and separate two things there to try and answer um, answer your question. So the two things I'm really interested in, the two things I'm looking for in past and contemporary art, literature, film in particular, uh, to inform my own practice, you know, there are two things, you know, and they're form and content. So I'm very interested in form. 
Uh, and I'm a modernist, really, in that respect. So I'm very interested in works that um, aim to innovate formally, uh, to do something that hasn't been done before, and not just for the sake of it, you know, that has some sort of pressing, like, aesthetic and particularly political need to innovate with form. And I think the works that interest me the most are the ones that innovate with form in a way that is politically informed. So I'm very interested in uh, people like Bertolt Brecht and Vladimir Mayakovsky, uh, so sort of German expressionist painters and poets and playwrights, and the Soviet poets, painters and playwrights, because they were, you know, looking to revolutionise the societies they're in. Yeah. Um, and they're very interested in the potential of art to do that and interested in finding forms that were new that would allow the art to do that yeah. and having a formal as well as political break with the past. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're very right to pick up that I'm very, very interested in this historical work. Um, and really, you know, it's it's the sort of early 20th century, and particularly the kind of 1910s and 1920s that particularly interest me mm-hmm. on that score. Um, so then the other, the other thing to talk about here is content, and particularly as it's regarded writing about trans issues for me you know i have political motivations in writing about trans issues which is to um you know win over more of the public to trans people and try and break down transphobia um through the media and through through the arts uh and then it's a matter of like analyzing content and there is very little work from before the second world war culturally um that really deals with trans identities, which are still being codified in the early 20th century, kind mm. of by outsiders, by medics, really. Um, so it's only really from the sort of 1950s onwards that you get a significant amount of, like, transsexual memoir, of culture with, like, trans characters or exploring trans issues. And then I'm interested in exploring them from a political point of view, saying what do these works do in terms of representing the characters? Like, who is doing the representing? Do they have any lived experience? Um, what are their what are their motivations? Are they pro or anti? Um, you know how quote unquote problematic is this? Um, and so a lot of the works there kind of date from the sort of seventies through to the present. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm interested in how things shift. Which things feel like they're ahead of their time? Yeah. Um, you know, I've written a lot about a um, a film by a German filmmaker called Rosa von Praunheim called City of Lost Souls in the early 80s, which was um, this kind of queer musical uh, made up of this ensemble cast of of American outsiders in West Berlin, a lot of whom were queer or trans, several of whom were people of colour. And this film really uh, kind of exceeded what the director was doing with it because plot-wise it's a shambles. Mm. It's a complete mess. Mm. Um, And all the reviews at the time picked this up. Um, In terms of who is speaking and what they're speaking about, though, the film is fascinating because there are several trans characters, for example, who just talk to each other about their gender identities, about their experiences. Um, And the director just let them improvise. So, you know, very little of the film was scripted. The scripted bits are the least interesting bits, really. Um, And was this in German or English? Sorry. What's that? Which language? Was it in German or English? Uh, it's in German. Oh, okay. Yeah, a lot, a lot of the characters are are American, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's in German. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, they talk about trans things in a way that, you know, I hadn't really 
seen again in culture until sort of 10 or 15 years later. Mm. Um, you know, there was a big explosion of trans films in the 90s, most of which were, were scripted, were aiming to be more mainstream um, and were not written by trans people or made by trans people. Um, and are infinitely less interesting than some of the older works that just give these these trans characters space to speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like there's more of a mix of approaches now and sort of mainstream film or relatively mainstream film is starting to kind of catch up with some of the, these older kind of underground films like City of Lost Souls. Mm. So, you know, I wrote a lot about Sebastian Lelio's film, A Fantastic Woman, a couple of years ago, which had a trans protagonist um, and, you know, did draw a reasonable amount from Daniela Vega's experiences and, I mean, makes a lot of compromises, I think, to be a relatively mainstream film. Um you know, there's but did they, I think they did a, a lot of um, justice to the character in, in Daniela Vega's character, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the, the, the protagonist in A Fantastic Woman is, is quite deeply and lovingly sketched. Mm. Um, and she suffers a lot. Um, and I know some of the trans people I know sort of had issues with the film because, you know, there's so much kind of misery endured by the character. Um, and you don't, you know, you don't see her with other trans people, really. I can't remember if you do or not, but you certainly don't very much. Um, and that's something that's still happening in more like underground film. Um, something like Jesse uh, Rovanelli's film So Pretty that came out, I think, last year, where you actually see a kind of trans and queer community. That's not really something that's happening in mainstream spaces yet. Um, but it will come, I think. So um, you, you... It's interesting to, you know, just look at, Look at these residents of the past and use them to see what's missing in the present. Yeah, you're right. So, um, what I can read from this is that you do you think that there are any more innovations in in style of writing which are happening now, or it's kind of people are like it's quite cliche. I know this um, uh, Argonauts, which is a suddenly there's a turn. Have you have you read that book by um, Maggie I have, Nelson? Yeah. Mm. Um, and um, I thought that was a new way of writing. But that was one, that whether, you know, you find that people are innovating in the way they write content. And secondly, about um, uh, these films which have trans people not um, uh, being with other trans people. I would think that you would want trans people to be more integrated with the larger society rather than being just amongst themselves. And you would want films to show that you know you are part of everybody else so why would you even want um and i don't know if it's like a very specific question but i would think that you would want a more integrated kind of approach when you're talking about how trans people should live in society um i think there's space for both Mm. um i think it's very important to you know look at how yeah like you say like how trans people move within a wider society, yeah. you know, how we deal with, um, you know, family, friends, colleagues, etc. the general public. And of course, that's what I was really doing in my memoir and in my Guardian yeah. series. Yeah. Um, but, you know, sort of trans people historically have been quite atomized, quite isolated, because we've been encouraged to be, you know, the general entity clinics historically would tell people, you know, to 
move away perhaps and to live in stealth and never tell anyone they were trans if they could help it and all of this and so we have a very awkward relationship with ideas around visibility and community I think historically speaking and trans communities are forming more and they do have use to people and I think it is interesting to depict them in culture and I don't think it's the only thing that should be happening yeah um but I don't think it shouldn't be happening um and indeed in the volume of short stories that I've got coming out next year um I do try to make an effort in a number of the stories uh to show trans people with other trans people and that historically we were able to find each other um you know despite kind of censorship and suppression and self-repression all of these things um and you know sort of explore the consequences a bit of trans people you know maybe moving in groups through the world rather than moving through the world purely on their own and what that was like Mm, so you're doing the, the the exact opposite of what I said. Okay, great. So um, now I want to move on to the memoir, which makes such amazingly interesting reading. I would totally recommend anybody to you know read read your memoir to not only understand your you as a person, but also get the entire picture of trans history and uh, the context of uh, trans history in today's um, world and how it, things are just in turmoil still, isn't it? So, um, and it com- yeah, it combines trans history in a very seamless way. And I felt it kind of provides a mind map or a route for somebody to learn to piece themselves together when they've been unsure about their identity. It could be a trans identity or it could be a young person or woman or man still trying to find their individuality. I felt that you kind of unpicked it so well that you can use that same model to your own um, lives and try and uh, read it like that. So uh, would, what is, was that one of your intentions to kind of um, um, like have, it's not a formula, but then for people to learn from what you went through and how to uh, understand your own mind. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the book, is not just intended as a sort of roadmap to transitioning. People's paths to transitioning are different in different places, different times. That is like literally the easiest, isn't it? It's such a physical thing and the visceral aspect of it. But the the abstract nature of how you, what kind of woman you want to be, what kind of person do you want, even after transitioning? Or are you the same person, but uh, people look at you differently, so how that changes you? So those yeah. are the things you um, talked about in the book very nicely, actually. Yeah, and I mean, I wanted to, you know, just go back to what you were saying just a moment ago. You know, I did want to, you know, just explore the sort of process of finding yourself and forming an identity through interaction with other people that, like you say, you know, is relevant to everyone, really. And I really wanted to write about this process of sort of self-definition, through your friends and through your sort of schooling and education and through the kind of culture that you interact with. And yeah, you know, having a specifically trans spin on it. So, you know, I am particularly affected by, you know, everything from from sort of transphobia and weird framing of trans issues in everything from like the Jerry Springer show through to, you know, Raina Werner Fassbinder films, um, for example but um you know yeah i do feel that these these things are present for everyone and maybe as a trans person you're more aware of it because you really feel the sense in which you're just not represented in mainstream society so you do really have to look 
for those representations. And a lot of the book is like my process of finding those representations and informing some sort of relationship and to them and with them and then forming some sort of identity through through there. But I, you know, I do think these are things that lots of people could relate to. Um, you know, particularly women, because women are, you know, more pressured to think very hard about, you know, how they comport themselves, how they dress, how they move, how they speak, um, you know, all of these things. And, um, and yeah, I wanted that to be relatable in the book rather than just, just being very, very specific to being a trans person. I mean, a lot of the book is just about being in your 20s yeah. and what it's like to just, you know... I mean, I really wanted the book as much as anything to sort of capture how it felt to grow up in, like, Tony Blair's Britain, you know. Um, but somebody like me... Is the sort of new Labour period and, you know, sort of getting a good degree and then getting terrible jobs. And, yeah, yeah. You know, not, you know, just bouncing from one piece of rented accommodation to another and then the sort of... The last bit of the book is what it's like to live under austerity and, you know, the sort of David Cameron period. I really wanted to capture a sense of of that wider political context as well as just the trans one. Right, right, right. Um, for me, um, living... You, you describe your life in, in, in the UK under these political conditions, but for me, living in India... I could completely relate to what you went through. I, I don't want to take away from your experiences, but this is what women go through in India. It's not, not even trans women. So uh, all about the fact that you are, you feel exposed when you are in summer, when you don't you can't cover up fully and going out at night and being, you know, worried about being followed and stalked and all that. So I really um, can could relate to that. Uh, the second bit about the book I wanted to talk about was that I heard the book. I didn't read it. And that adds another layer to understanding you as a person. It's like, it's like I know you as a friend <laughs> because I've heard it's not you I know, but that person uh, you chose to read the book really did a fantastic job, I must say, um, because it kind of um, is like another... Um, Oh, what do I say? It's another character. It's another texture. It adds to the whole experience. And you use this person again in the film, I've noticed. So is there a particular reason why you don't um, uh, give your voice to your own uh, writing or and you use somebody else's voice? Um, yeah, I mean, on a very basic level, I just hate my voice. Um, I really don't like it. Um, and... I don't know, just, you know, I have a lot of anxiety about the extent to which I have spoken about myself in my writing. Um, and, you know, I always, whenever I'm doing anything now, and, you know, this has been the case for quite a long time, that it's just writing purely about myself. I mean, I try not to do it anymore because I really just say, oh, God, does anyone need to hear any more about me? <laughs> Surely I've said everything that's of interest. Um, I can with, imagine. with the memoir, I mean, you know, Audible, who recorded it, they wanted me to narrate it. Right. And I just sort of felt that, like, me reading my own life story would be kind of a bit too much. Yeah. And it would be kind of raw. Uh, at the time, I was just really exhausted. I just didn't really fancy doing it. Um, and I, you know, I, mean, I mentioned earlier, very interested in people like Brecht. And, you know, Brecht and his, um, you know, his alienation techniques, his techniques of sort of distanciating um his audiences from from a story in order to encourage them to um, pick up some sort of social or political resonances from it. 
And I thought with the memoir, it'd be really, it would be quite interesting. Uh, the Fremdom's effects is the, the phrase he used in German. But yeah, it'd be quite interesting to, effect, yeah. to have someone else narrate my story for precisely that reason. Um, you know, the actor would interpret it in some, in some way. Um, you know, a lot of the material in the book is quite raw and it was one thing to kind of write it, but out into the world, I didn't really want to just stand in a studio reading it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that just kind of really appealed to me, really. I mean, there's this kind of Brechtian uh, influence running through the memoir. I mean, they wanted a photo of me on the cover as well. And I insisted on a drawing. I mean, I would have liked something more abstract still, if I'm honest, but the compromise I made was having a drawing of me. Um, so there's that sort of, you know, sense of just like, what you're getting in the book, you know, is a representation of me. It's not me as such. I mean, it is and it isn't. And the same thing was at play with the um, with the narration in the audiobook. And also with the title, I think, you know, sort of calling it like trans a memoir. Um like trans is the subject matter and uh, memoir is the form. And of course, you know, by choosing those two bits of the title, it kind of tells you that that's not all you're getting precisely, you know, by signifying it so overtly. Um, It also sort of tells you that you're getting something that's playing with these concepts to some extent. Um, I mean, with Approach Withdraw, obviously, um, I made that film with Kerr Woolwork, who you know as a... um, uh, co-student of yours on the um, yeah. sculpture day at the Royal College of Art. Uh, so, you know, in terms of narration, I mean, firstly, there was the fact that Kerr and I, um, you know, we, there was two of us making that film and the, the script for that film is quite interesting because um, obviously Kerr and I co-wrote it and the idea was for our two voices to kind of blend into one. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the perspectives to become kind of blurred. So it had to be a third voice, really. It couldn't be either of us. Mm. Um, And we chose Rebecca Root uh, partly because I had worked with her on the memoir. And, you know, she had um, been on this BBC sitcom playing a trans character. It's the first TV sitcom to have an openly trans character played by an openly trans actor. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rebecca just seemed like a really interesting choice, and you know, I kind of really wanted to give her, give her the work. And um, nice. yeah, she she did a really interesting job with that narration. I think it was very it's a very difficult film to narrate, uh, even more so than my next film, You Will Be Free, which has also got this sort of disembodied narration, but. Um, well, that, that you know, approach, just... approach withdraw is a really difficult film to narrate precisely because it's so sort of hard to tell who the voice is and where it's coming from and what it wants. Mm. Um, yeah, I um, I saw it after you described it in the RCA lecture. So I knew the context and it was so interesting to see both the films together. I didn't realize the second one, but then when I researched about it, oh my God, it brought tears to my eyes. It was amazing. So I'll talk about the film later. But I wanted to talk about one thing. One is that in interviews, often you say that you're a reluctant activist and and that you don't want to um, uh, be seen in in an activist light because in the book you say that you're scared of doing uh, of being like the poster child for trans people and you're always under the magnifying glass and you can't do anything wrong and that kind of thing. But I feel that. Um, 
an activism, you may not have a choice because it has chosen you. Uh, you're quite glamorous, if I may say so. <laughs> and, uh, and you have to have a certain star quality for people to be interested, one in you, and then find out what you um, stand for. So have you changed your perspective in that, um, in that fact that you now reluctantly say, okay, this is what I do, this is activism is something I have to do considering what's happening? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, when I started doing the Guardian series, I got called an activist a lot. And I was very, very, uh, you know, it's 10 years ago now, and I wasn't really known for anything else at that point. You know, this is my sort of breakthrough writing. And, um, you know, I was very, very careful to say at the time, that no, I'm not an activist, I'm a writer. You know, activism to me was doing kind of grassroots work with communities or liaising with government, um, you know, some of which I've, you ended up doing through my writing but I am very much a writer and you know I don't really consider myself an activist or at least not um not you know I don't consider the writing activism in itself um you know as I've sort of said uh well you know I was very um you know said I was very influenced by people like B.S. Johnson and Quinn Rain Heppenstall and all these like mid-20th century French writers and, you know, I saw my Guardian writing, you know, it had a political purpose to it, of course, but I saw it as an interesting experiment in, like, literary subjectivity. And, of course, lots of people didn't see it like that and just saw it as this very politicised intervention into a public discourse, uh, which it also was. And I kind of grew more into that. And then over the sort of intervening decade, I mean, you know... Um, no, but as you... Sorry. But as you increase in influence, as people start looking at what you do, apart from your um, uh, writing about your, cell, your memoir and trans work, you write about art and you're an art critique. And as people respect you, then won't they kind of take what you say about trans work and trans um, rights more seriously that way? Well, there's that. And there is this feeling that, you know, during the last decade, as the sort of political climate has got worse, and during the last half of the last decade, where there's been, a you know, sustained uh, attacks on trans people and, you know, backlash against trans visibility, uh, you know, I have found myself thinking more and more, well, I have a platform and I have a responsibility to use it. And so I try and use it quite sparingly because I'm completely burnt out. I mean, I don't consider myself an activist, but I do have activist burnout. Uh, and have so have done so for years i mean yeah. a really really long time um so i make my interventions quite sparing um you know so for example the british government at the moment is looking to roll back trans rights so it's sort of planning to ignore the consultation it held on the gender recognition act two years ago because it didn't like the pro-trans results it got back and it's also looking to roll back you know protected characteristics for trans people uh, in the Equality Act of 2010 and, you know, look to kind of bar trans people from same-sex spaces. My suspicion is that they will, ign- you know, they will, they, they will ignore the Gender Recognition Act forms. Yeah, I they believe so. Probably, they probably won't go through with the Equality Act changes because it's unenforceable, but then it wouldn't surprise me either. So definitely don't quote me on that. Nothing would surprise me with this lot, quite frankly. Um, and, you know, I mean, really, if you want to predict anything in British politics at the moment, just like imagine the most spiteful and stupid and petty and corrupt outcome and then make it worse and you'll be somewhere close. Um 
But, you know, in order to speak out against this, I have been on the trans rights protests that happened in London uh, recently. But, you know, I, I was not leading on that. I wasn't speaking at it. I was just a voice in the crowd. I have uh, written something for The Guardian, which they may or may not publish. Um, if they don't publish it, I will publish it somewhere else and mm. say that The Guardian didn't run it. I am working on a podcast series with like 10 trans people in their kind of 20s. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, to ask them just what they feel about being a young trans person in Britain at the moment. Um, so that's three kind of serious interventions, really. And I'm also doing some sort of behind the scenes stuff around certain like Labour Party things and whatnot. And obviously also wrote a piece for the New York Times earlier this year, uh, talking about the just, you know, absurd pitch of intensity that this discussion had reached in British media and politics. So I do, I tend to keep my interventions like fairly sparing and I certainly don't, you know, I won't do something every day. Mm. But because I've managed to work myself into a position where, yes, I can publish in big platforms, I can speak to people in politics and in yeah. media um you know i try not to do too much but i try to make it impactful when when i do right 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 um so going back to writing did you always consider yourself a good writer and can it be learned and um, your writing combines a particular style that is very accessible yet is backed by formidable research and did you ever uh, have a crisis of confidence growing up or was that like your a talent that you could take refuge in when you were like feeling like um quite out of it with the rest of the society was was that some was a was that like a a bit that you could you know rely on for yourself <laughs> or was that something oh, that... Um, <laughs> uh, I had a, a long long crisis of confidence really that was all through the 2000s um you know I really it's hard writing is hard my god <laughs> wanted to be a writer as a student you know it's really about the age of 20 that I decided well I really want to go into writing and then I moved to Brighton when I finished my undergraduate degree and that was probably a mistake I probably should have gone to London really but I didn't have anyone telling me look if you want to be a writer you need to be in London at least for a bit um and so I moved to Brighton and you know did my master's degree and did some journalism on the side but you know nothing nothing worked for years I mean I I tried to write plays and I sent them off to theatre companies and I got on a young theatre writers course at the Soho Theatre and that was a big confidence boost but then they didn't like the thing I turned in for the course really which was quite frustrating and indeed the thing I wrote for that course was about a young writer who wants to change the world through writing and doesn't know how to do it um so these plays didn't really work I tried writing a tv script for a sort of program about trans people in Brighton couldn't really make that work either I tried writing poetry had one or two poems published but was never really a poet couldn't make that work tried writing a novel radio plays none of it came off um and it was only really you know I was 27 28 I think 20 yeah I've been 28 when that Guardian series started running and that was that was my break and obviously that went really well. That went much better than I was expecting. And so I did get a lot more confident after that. But I got confident in my ability to write journalism at that point, um, which is the thing I have been doing most of and been published the most. I've published quite a lot of journalism 
during the second half of the 2000s. So then it was all about sort of, you know, becoming confident in writing like short fiction and longer works. And, you know, each type of writing required me to, um, you know, kind of practice and raise my game. I mean, I have a period of writing that I'm very, very fond of. Um, I had a run of writing in sort of between about 2013 and 2015. Um, that started with a long piece I ended up publishing in the New States when it was commissioned elsewhere uh, about a video game from the 1980s, kind of life simulator called Alter Ego. Oh. Um, and I wrote this 4,000-word essay on it. It's still one of my favourite things I've written. Um, but that was, like, the first time I really sort of felt I was moving beyond just, like, short-form reviews or short-form kind of first-person blogs, um, you know, into something much more ambitious and evolved and you know the piece actually came out close to how I imagined it in my head which doesn't often happen with writing Mm. and then I feel I had this kind of purple patch from there through to um I finished the memoir and I was asked to write something about the memoir um and I wrote this article for Granta called Nostalgia and it was charting my sort of journey from the mid-2000s when I was writing this very very impersonal film criticism that you know studiously avoided the word I you know I would not bring myself into that writing at all and it reads very impersonally and you know like it's been written by a ghost or a machine or something I find it really weird reading that writing back now um because it's so detached um and you know this journey from there to writing this very very confessional first person writing and then getting pigeonholed as that kind of writer and hating it because I thought well no look I write about video art and I was trying to make video art um and finding that middle ground. And I did that through this lens of um, writing about Hollis Frampton's film from the early 70s, Nostalgia, uh, where Frampton uh, describes his old career as a photographer before he became a filmmaker and employs all these kind of interesting distancing techniques, including actually getting someone else to narrate his personal story. So I think there's a link there with the, the memoir mm. um, and the audio book of the memoir. Right. Maybe that was something I subconsciously took from uh, from Hollis Frampton. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the Frampton film, again, finds this really interesting ground between this like very stridently often genders male formal experimentation and this kind of confessional narrative. And the essay was about me doing the same in my writing. Um, And, you know, during that time, I really felt myself improving a lot as a writer and really getting engaged in, like, big political struggles around trans stuff, but also, you know, really improving formally as a journalist and as an essay writer and as a short story writer as well. That was when I really started publishing a lot more short fiction as well. Um, and, you know, I think I'm, I'm still writing well now, but I don't, I, don't feel, I don't feel the improvement so much. I think it's probably like when you're, you take up like running or something, you can really feel yourself getting fitter and fitter and fitter. And then it gets to a point where you're just more fit and you don't have to strain yourself as, as hard. And maybe hopefully that's the point. Now. Wow, that's nice. That's good to know. So um, in many of your stories, you say like when you write about fiction, you've um, you based your fictional characters on history, on real uh, happenings which happened. Uh, and then you kind of just plant a fictional transgender character. That is so clever because you you keep wondering what bit of it is. Maybe this trans person was also real because everything else seems to be like what it says in when you read about that 
uh, those events so how did you come about that and was there uh, is that like an effective way of uh, re um, uh, inserting trans uh, histories into the past yeah i mean you know as i as i've said earlier there was a real problem for me being interested in art film and art house film and literature in particular and visual art in that there was a lack of trans representation because you know it's only been historically very very recently that trans people have felt confident to come out at all and you know when they have have often been you know excluded from all sorts of sex of society including the arts except as kind of objects of fascination i think mm-hmm. um so, you know, my thesis, of course, is that there have always been trans people. We just haven't necessarily always been allowed to come out. Um, a lot of legislation against homosexuality has actually been aimed at gender variants or also been aimed at gender variants. And um, so often in my fiction and in the, the volume I've just finished writing that's going to be published next year, um, yeah, there is this uh, this very conscious sort of thing of saying well look i can't definitively say these people existed through non-fictional writing but i can you know imagine what trans lives would have been like 50 100 years 150 years ago um and write accordingly so yeah and there is this really interesting process i do like to use of finding historical societies where i know there is this like trans and queer underside um but it's quite hard to sort of stitch it into a non-fiction narrative. But if you create a character with some sort of gender identity issue and put them into that scenario, then you can pull all the threads around that character and give it a kind of centre, give it a kind of gravity. Um, so that's what I've done with quite a lot of my writing. I mean, in the um, in the new volume, uh, my favourite story is called A Woman of No Importance. Um, and it's woman... W-O slash M-A-N. And it's set around the Oscar Wilde trial and the central character is this like young cross-dresser who, you know, identities like transsexual, transvestite don't exist yet. So this character doesn't have a particularly developed gender identity but wants to dress as a woman a lot. Um, You know, the technology for gender reassignment isn't there at that point. So again, that's not really an issue in the story. But, you know, there's this whole kind of like trans sub sort of culture around the Oscar Wilde trial and that circle of kind of like gay and queer male writers around London in the 1890s. Um, you know, one of the people tried and sent down along with Oscar Wilde was Alfred Taylor, who cross-dressed quite a lot. There's photos of Wilde dressed as Salome from the play that he wrote in the 1890s. Um, so where do you research all this? It's all available, like... It's kind of just things that, yeah, I mean... That's that's a hard question to answer. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, these, these short stories have been my life's work, really. I mean, I spent 17 years working on them. Um, so lots of other reading from things I was just interested in from other reasons. I mean, I mentioned the Oscar Wilde story. And, you know, I was very interested in that historical period. Generally, the 1890s, I find really fascinating um, because it's a kind of age of really interesting experimentation in literature and philosophy. It's, you know, a huge decade for socialist politics, which, of course, is something I've always been very interested in. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, sort of real formations of political movements that were going to be very influential in the 20th century, happening in the 1890s. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, it's, you've become more mute, I think. 
I can't oh, hear okay. you. Oh, yeah, no, it's fine, it's fine now, it's fine now. Yeah. So you get the invention of cinema in the 1890s, something I've always been fascinated by. Um, and, you know, of course, yes, Oscar Wilde and this, like, queer subculture. So would read about that and, you know, would find my way to, like, oh, okay, actually there's these little trans elements of the story, which are often just footnotes in the telling of it. Oh, okay. um, and then we'd go away and read books about Victorian sexuality, we'd find academics who had done research into proto-trans behaviour. Uh, there's a lot of sexology happening in Britain in the 1890s, people like Edward Carpenter, Havelock Ellis, indeed both of whom feature in the story. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it took an awfully long time to pull out these threads. And, you know, a lot of the primary research was done during my teens, um, staying up late to watch documentaries on BBC Two or Channel Four, back when they still used to do these kind of things in the 90s and early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, picking up on the things that pop culture offered to me and then going away and reading, like, primary sources, so people's memoirs, um uh historical texts fiction poetry all sorts of things really so where can we get access to your um short stories are they still going to come out or are they available um uh, online yeah i mean you're you're going most of you're going to have to wait until next year next i'm year. afraid when they're published i can't i'm not at liberty to say too much more no. about that yet okay. they will be out next year um the story i just mentioned a woman of no importance there's um there's a recording of me reading it on the Studio Voltaire website in kind of like late Victorian dress. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that that you can find. I think I have a question about that. Or oh, is it the woman in the portrait is different from the woman in the... That's a different story, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. But similar approach, I mean, yeah. Uh-huh. So um, my next question is about the social media, internet and its dysfunction. Uh, you were saying in your memoir about how you had very few um, uh, role models and you had people like Candy Darling or Priscilla, Queen of, Des- of the desert, desert. But, and one would think that now with social media, you have more information, but then you have to really be careful about what you take out of it. And I feel the internet is like the new colonizer, colonizing the majority over minorities. <laughs> because nowadays it seems to be like people kind of find their own kind and then they kind of group together and they bully the, the minorities into shutting up through the internet. So what do you have to say? I think it's happening with trans people to, to a great extent. So um, it is good and it is also, it's like, it's doing more. I think it's regressing all the, you know, the developments that you have been doing in the last 15 years. It's like you're taking a step back because of what's happening. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly been a real um, effort to bully trans people who were making a lot of advances in mainstream media in the early 2010s out of public life again. Um, and I mean, you're seeing, seeing now, you know, um, a real attempt to bully anyone on the left in Britain out of public life, um, you know, after the monumental scare that the establishment got, particularly in the 2017 election here, but, you know, over the last five years more generally. Um, and it's the same people doing the same things in the same way, really. It's gaslighting, it's carpet bombing the public discourse with just disingenuous and false narratives and false information. Um, that we either have to spend all of our time trying to rebut 
unsuccessfully because it's being blurted out by a megaphone by like a million old and new media outlets. I know. And who do um, you answer? What do you take? And what what can you argue? Who can you argue? You can't kind of take everybody and keep <laughs> rebutting them. No, and it's designed to overwhelm. And, yeah. you know, it's... I mean, British media at this point is just an absolute orgy of bad faith. I mean, it really, really is. Um, British media is completely broken. But if you, um, if somebody like me from the outside feels like the British media is so much more like uh, reasonable compared to what's happening outside, let me tell you. It's like mm-hmm. the whole world is like literally, it's happening that way and it's worse outside. It's things like people, you can get killed for having a certain point of view in some yeah. countries. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're not Turkey, for example, you know, um, not yet. Um, but, you know, the British media nonetheless is, is completely broken um, and it's nepotistic and it is completely uninterested in actually reporting the world as it is. And it's far more interested in like willing the world it wants into being. Um, and the world it wants is a world without the left, without trans people in particular, um, a world in which, you know, existing power structures are not really challenged. I mean, you know, um, if you've been following the Black Lives Matter movement yeah. and the just frankly deranged responses to the perfectly reasonable um, act of like Bristolian saying, look, we've been going on at you for decades to take the statue down. You're not going to do anything, so we take it down ourselves. And you know, there. And within a week, you have somebody who's, <laughs> who puts up his own work on top of it. Like, well, right, yeah. And you know, that has its own set of problems. But well, I mean, within a week, like the British media had turned, you know, the, black, the sort of, you know, structural critique being offered by the Black Lives Matter movement into a sort of bullshit culture war about, oh, they won't even let us watch Little Britain anymore, um, which, you know, nobody was demanding. Um, so, yeah, I mean, operating within that media environment is very, very difficult. Um, and I think we've really got no option but to set up our own spaces now. Um, and it's very interesting during the pandemic because, you know, for example, like The Guardian have just laid off a lot of staff. Mm. And nobody should be celebrating this, actually. I mean, the people who are losing their jobs are, you know, probably not bad people. They're probably not people I essentially disagree with. They're not, like, name columnists. Um, but nonetheless, you know, The Guardian in particular has lost a lot of goodwill with trans people and people on the left because it spent the last kind of five years just routinely, like, demonising and insulting us with pretty grave political consequences for us, quite frankly. For them to then turn around and be like, you know, give us money. Um, you know, I understand the, the reaction on the part of a lot of, like, trans people to saying, well, no. Um, you know, trans people tried really, really hard in the early part of the 20, uh, 2010s, me in particular, to make that representation better. We're trying to do it without having kind of nasty showdowns with, you know, big name columnists or editorial staff or whatever, and without denouncing people. Mm. Um, And it was kind of thrown back in people's faces. So... um, And that is like uh, respectable media houses. I mean, when you expect them to do better, they are doing this. So imagine... Like Twitter or um, Facebook or <laughs> those yeah, places completely. you have but, no you know, accountability. There's a relationship between these things, you know. I mean, the the take the takes in the sort of big, supposedly respectable liberal media institutions. You know, they despite the fact that the internet was supposed to be more democratizing, it hasn't really turned out like that. Mm. You know, these spaces still have like far more influence and far more voice. 
them kind of new media um and they they inform the the conversations on twitter and facebook they do take their cues from it i think right uh next i want to talk about approach withdraw and you will be free fantastic beautiful short films and the first one approach withdraw talks about the indifference of the pharmaceutical industry um towards hormonal medications that double as menopausal pills so um how is the situation now is it has it gotten better have you has have people taken notice of it or is it the same or do you have problems i mean does the community have problems uh, having access to medication what was the reason actually that you wanted us to know about it i had no clue to be honest, to be honest uh, about this i mean yeah like that film was commissioned as part of a um program called queering love queering hormones which was asking for first time filmmakers to um to make a short film you know in response to issues around like hormones and the body and um and how uh, how hormones affect the body and maybe affect the mind as well um so Kerr and I and it was actually sort of Kerr approached me with the film and to be honest the film is much more Kerr's film than my film mm-hmm. um both in terms of the dialogue and the imagery um I'd say the film is sort of like pretty two-thirds Kerr and one-third me really um i did congratulate her the same day when i saw it and she was also <laughs> modest and oh it's fine <laughs> yeah um but no it's it's much more cares film than to mine um and i just it felt interesting because i'd address that stuff in such a kind of direct journalistic way in my guardian writing about how difficult it was to access hormones through the nhs um how long it took and how frustrating it was then the effects that they had on the body and you know what that meant and for me it was just it was interesting to you know more on a sort of aesthetic an existential level just interesting for me to explore that in this more kind of a bleak and poetic way um you know i mean as, as i said earlier sort of approach withdraw you know deals just as much with kind of mental health issues and how these can be kind of triggered by hormonal changes mm. um and the sort of you know confusion that comes from that and it is you know it's a film that was made in a kind of a fuck um you know quite deliberately so um so it's not actually a film i really tend to think of that strongly as a sort of political intervention although you know i think i think it was because everything i make kind of is to some extent yeah but do you want to uh, many occur is very um politically engaged as well so yeah can't believe it's been one hour since we spoke and i have so <laughs> many questions so um Yeah so one of the last questions is how have you dealt with uh, your with the lockdown i know you've started your own podcast or you relaunched your radio series as a podcast and then you said that you have um the transgender series coming up with um with the young people so is that what you've been thinking of or have you um been doing more or um in lockdown yeah it's been interesting because you know um i have found my mojo in the lockdown so <laughs> yeah i mean obviously i teach and i write and i make films and i make podcasts and those are my main activities um and i was just sort of starting to find a balance of those in march when when the lockdown happened you know i've been on the picket line at the rca quite a lot oh yeah yeah um and politically i've been very energized by that um 
And I'd just been planning to relaunch the podcast before that and was going to record a show on the UCU strike, mm. uh, which we did in lockdown, but we, you know, we did it virtually rather than in person. Um, and it was interesting because, I mean, you know, my, my life was really shattered by the election, actually. I mean, that hit me very, very badly. I've been very involved with the campaign and, you know, had really been hoping to kind of secure this like left-wing government that would start to address a lot of the problems with this country, including things like lack of arts funding and the terrible state of British universities, particularly arts universities. Um, and I was just really scraping myself off the floor after that, you know, harrowing defeat. Uh, when the lockdown happened and, you know, everything I was trying to build up just collapsed again. Um, You know, at the start of the lockdown, I was just kind of, you know, no one was talking about anything other than COVID-19. And I didn't really know how to orient myself around it because I was like, well, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a health expert. I've got nothing to say here. Um, You know, COVID came with the problem that lots of other issues have in that there's like lots of people on the internet, um, usually men, let's face it, who just suddenly become experts in coronaviruses mm-hmm. as they sort of, you know, suddenly become experts in like Bolivian politics or, um, you know, whatever. Um, it's quite tiresome. And I didn't want to be that person. Um, so I had to kind of collect myself. And actually the the Sweet 212 sessions that I did, they were um, the idea of Alona Sagar, who's an artist and PhD student at the RCA. I see. And she just suggested kind of Corona Radio. It was kind of a joke. Mm-hmm. But I thought that, you know, the podcast would be, I was in lockdown, I was staying with my parents. I was out of London, so I was really away from my community, although there wasn't much community during lockdown, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like... It was a way of keeping in touch with my friends and just a way of, you know, because not all of those podcasts, I think I did 18 of those sessions and not all of them were with my friends, but probably about 10 of them were maybe. But all of the early ones were with people I was kind of friends with and made a real kind of virtue out of that. And I was, you know, for other people, there's something about podcasting that I really like, this sort of parasocial aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, and you know, if you're listening to like friends have a conversation and the same sort of themes come up uh, over the course of the discussions, um, like my favourite podcast is called We Don't Talk About the Weather, oh. um, and it's just these these two guys, and they're, they're quite old friends. I think they've known each other since they were at school and they're both kind of on the left and they talk about like left-wing politics and media in Britain uh, and the state of things. So they're quite they're quite pessimistic. They're quite cynical they're quite negative in some ways but they're they're really they're really funny but they're very good analytically and just the themes they talk to uh really interest me and the same sort of themes come up again and again in their conversations and i like that so i was trying to do something similar with these sessions so found that obviously the covid outbreak came up a lot but also the ucu strikes the shadow of the election the general state of british politics but also some more international things as well um And that felt, you know, people really appreciated those conversations and I really appreciated having them. Um, I mean, I wrote a lot. I dealt with the lockdown by just being like hyperproductive. And I've ended up writing several things about COVID in the end. But, you know, the impact of COVID on football, on teaching, on British politics, once it became a bit clearer what those things were. But I also finished that volume of short stories and, and did some other writing and journalism uh, the one thing I really struggled to do was read, actually. I found reading impossible. It just became really hard to concentrate on everything. Mm. Nothing I read felt like it stood up to the magnitude of what was happening. Um, I actually ended up, so rather than reading, because it was really hard to guide my reading in a society that felt like it had kind of stopped as well. Um, because, you know, for me, reading is always tied up with some sort of self-direction. Uh-huh. 
I ended up watching loads of films about nuclear war and the nuclear threat. Mm. Um, because they, you know, partly because there was this idea that like the air was dangerous. Mm. Um, I watched the whole of the Chernobyl series that HBO did. Oh my god! Uh, was reminded of my trip to Chernobyl a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, partly because I'd fled my home city and it reminded me of seeing these like abandoned towns and cities in the exclusion zone. Uh, yeah. Partly, yeah, this idea of the air being dangerous and you know this complete disaster being brought about by an adherence to an ideology that was clearly dying mm. um because you know i think in britain like the covid outbreak's been much worse because of this slavish devotion to this like growth and this profit-led economy and this um you know this this putting of the economy before people uh, that has led to you know thousands upon thousands of excess deaths in the uk and paradoxically is going to damage our economy a lot more mm. as well it's not even going to have the effect it was hoped to have. Um, so that was really interesting. And then, yeah, just, just found myself watching watching all these these films about nuclear arms and nuclear, nuclear disaster. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, which I'm not sure helped that much. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I was about lot, to see that. A lot of other people went very, very escapist and just, you know, took it very light. But um, that's never really been my style. As long as you didn't watch Contagion, that film. <laughs> well, <laughs> I didn't see that. Pam <laughs> acting. Anyway, um, I wanted to thank you so much. Such an amazingly invigorating conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. And one hour went like, I don't know how, so quickly. So thank you so much, Juliet. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.